Welcome to Multicultural Minds, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness of multicultural mental health. My name is Emily Unity, and I will be your host. Thank you for being here with us and listening to voices that are often not heard. Our guest today is Antoinette Latouf. She is a multi-award winning journalist from a refugee background and is changing the way that multicultural people are represented in media. She is also a mental health advocate for mothers, having spoken bravely and openly about her experiences of postnatal depression. This podcast contains trigger warnings about depression, family, and culture. Thank you so much for being here today, Antoinette. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name's Antoinette Latouf, and I guess I wear lots of different hats. Um, So I'm a mother. I have two young daughters. Mm. I'm also a journalist at Network 10. I Mm. am an ambassador for the Gidget Foundation, which is a a parent's mental health organisation after I... um, you know, suffered and endured pretty debilitating postnatal depression and anxiety. Mm. I'm a diversity advocate. I co-founded Media Diversity Australia, which uh, advocates for more cultural diversity in mainstream media. Mm. Uh, I'm an author, just finished writing my first book. I I wear a range of different hats and I'm sleep deprived. So that's probably (laughs) something else to add. I like that. I like how you also identify as sleep deprived amongst all that. And the sleep deprivation definitely makes sense given all your other hats. Yeah, but important and things I'm super passionate about. So I wouldn't have it any other way. That's true. I find that, um, you know, surrounded by this culture of like, do what you love um, and you'll never work in a day in your life. And I think the sentimentality is more like, do what you love and you'll just have really poor boundaries. (laughs) Well, at least, you know, it's good to hear that you were encouraged to do what you love. I was told by my my father, I grew up in a very kind of traditional Arab patriarchal Mm. household and community, and I was told to drop out of school and become a hairdresser because nobody wanted to to marry somebody who was talked too much or was too smart. Mm. So I had, luckily, thankfully, I I, um, ignored that advice. Yeah, definitely. How do you feel like you have those sorts of conversations with your parents now? Oh, you know, look, my, my, my father now will, you know, watch me on telly and, you know, rub his mm. big tummy and and say, <laughs> hey, Dibintu, you know, that's my daughter. Um, and so um, I, I, he's grown and evolved and learned so much. Um, so, yeah, there are no hard feelings. And he's quietly proud that I didn't listen to anything he advised. That's really good. I feel like journeys through cultures and understanding is not just something that we walk through alone. Um, and I've definitely shared that sort of journey with my parents as well. So it's really, that's really beautiful. So thank you for sharing with me, particularly about your experience with postnatal depression. And I'm really sorry to hear that you went through that, but it, it sounds like you've really taken the strengths from that. And you're really trying to change the narrative for other people. How do you feel like you're coping with that now? And How is advocacy for you in that space? Well, thank you so much for asking how I'm coping now. I think because people, if they hear my story or they see the rest of my life, many quickly assume that that was something that I experienced and I guess put to bed. And in many ways, Mm. I wish I had. And while, you know, the, the, the absolutely debilitating worst of it, where I wasn't sleeping and eating and showering and able to look after myself or my child, while that part has certainly passed, um, mm. it's, it's an ongoing journey. And there are times where I've regressed and my self-care has been poor and, uh, you know, I take mm. some steps back. 
so I'm, I'm, I'm much better, but I'm certainly, you know, I wouldn't say I was free of mental health challenges. Mm. It's more that I've, like, I've accepted it's part of my identity and it's something I probably have to manage for the rest of my life. I'm really glad that you acknowledge that because I think that unfortunately a lot of people do treat it as sort of a binary like they think that Mm. you're like recovered full stop and then you don't experience anything anymore yeah and I think for some people that is the case and that's Mm. great but when you especially if you're you know highly anxious you're often Mm. grappling with that or waiting impatiently for that moment to arise uh, to arrive Mm. and many times that's led for led me to relapse when I've gotten off my medication Mm. or I haven't slept well or I haven't looked after myself and and Sadly, it's meant that I ended up in emergency departments at the hospital in the middle of the night um, mm. because I've thought, oh, okay, I can I can pack that away. I don't need to do that anymore. And mm. so it's only after, I guess, um, those stuff-ups really and those setbacks that I've come to accept that this isn't one and done, this isn't finished, mm. it's, it's ongoing. Absolutely. Definitely like that wiggly line of recovery and it's a journey that I, I think for me, like I, I struggle with something similar and thinking like, oh, you know, I've, I've won the battle and I don't need mm. to go through it again. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's something that I've also accepted as part of my identity is something that, you know, we sort of integrate into our lives and that we learn to live with and build a life that we still want to keep living around that. Um, and that sounds like you've, you've really done that too. You've taken the best out of really difficult situations. I wonder about, you know, that, that sort of mentality of, oh, you know, I'll just, I, I'll just deal with it or like it'll pass. For me, like that's very oh, tied to a lot of my cultural upbringing. Is that oh. the same for you? Yeah, absolutely. I guess um, in my experience, and we may have this in common, I guess hardship or hard work um, was just part of living. And, mm. and so I think many migrants or my parents were refugees their life story was littered with with trauma mm. and with war and with loss and with challenge and for mm. them hardship was part and parcel of living mm. and so the, i guess they mistook my my experiences of anxiety and depression for just a bit of a rough patch and right. didn't really accept that it was that rough a patch because they're looking at me in a at my lovely home with my helpful husband with my you know, with all the luxuries that they didn't have because they mm. were so poor and um, and they were refugees and thinking, well, she might be having a hard time, but this isn't really hard because mm. I can tell her a thing or two about real yeah. hardship <laughs> um, and not being able to distinguish or not being able to understand or perhaps not even being able to accept that things can seem picture perfect and that mental illness isn't about who experienced necessarily who experienced the worst trauma Mm. um and so I guess that was something that I really struggled with you know it was like oh it's just a bad day every new mum is tired every new mum is like well no now it's week after week and I can't sleep and I can't eat and I can't stop crying and I, I I wake up with this horrible pit in my stomach and I don't I don't want to I don't want to endure the day I think how am I going to get through the day this isn't because I witnessed someone die or because I have no money. Yeah. It's, it's happening um, ir- despite the fact that none of those factors are part of my life. And so that's where, that's where I really struggled with my, with my family, my parents in particular, because I guess they didn't think that my, my rough time and my darkness was quite dark enough by their measures. 
I'm really sorry to hear that. And thank you for sharing with me. I really want to celebrate the empathy that you show when you recollect stuff like that. You said that like, you know where they come from and you know that they went through something that was incredibly difficult and you show this real empathy for their experiences, but it doesn't sound like you were necessarily met with that sort of same understanding at the time. It's because for me, um, I sort of use this term called like the trauma Olympics. It's like we sort of pit pain <laughs> against different levels of pain and, you know, my pain's more valid than yours or mm. worse than yours and therefore it's more important. And that's that's not the case. It's just they're different um, and they're all very valid and important. And I think particularly with mental health, it's even more difficult sometimes because you can't point to something that obvious and you can't really mm. explain it or communicate it that well. So I'm really sorry that you had to go through that. Thank you for your understanding. And also, I mean, I think that that oppression or trauma Olympics, um, yeah. you know, is 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 real. And and I think it's it's important to note here that grief and loss are one thing, and hardship. Mm. And so, you know, living through war and living through poverty and being refugees that is hardship. But mm. mental illness can be quite separate to that. Mm. It can have it can happen. To the to the most well-rounded, affluent, lucky mm. person, it's it's not necessarily. I mean, sometimes it can be triggered by you know environmental mm. circumstances, but sometimes, like in my case, I had I was I was kind of the textbook definition of lucky. Mm. I had family around. I had a partner. I had resources. I had knowledge. I had I had health. I had a healthy child who breastfed, who slept, who. Mm. I had a natural delivery um, mm. and, and despite ticking all of those boxes, it didn't mean that my anxiety wasn't through the roof and my emptiness mm. and sadness wasn't so deep that it kind of enveloped me. Um, Absolutely. And, I, and, and I, I think my parents have come around to, to accepting and understanding, I think, I hope, mm. um, but I think that for me was the real struggle, um, trying to get, to get them to understand that, a life of hardship and experiencing hardship is valid, but mental illness can sit completely independent of that. Absolutely. I wonder, um, so for me, the reason why I'm asking this question is, um, so my mum's a war refugee as well. And well, she never really believed in stuff like trauma and PTSD. And so of course, like she's not really going to be able to understand a lot of the like everyday anxieties that I was feeling. And she's now at a point where, you know, if I tell her that I'm anxious about like something intangible, she now is able to communicate with me and understand it. But it took us a really, really long and hard journey to get to this point. And I'm wondering what that sort of journey has been like for you, because it sounds like it's better, but it's still potentially ongoing. Yeah, look, I, I think, um, I don't know uh, in your cultural context or in your family, mm. but there was a lot of sh there's a lot of shame about mm. uh, when it comes to talking about mental illness. So that while you may experience it and your parents might not believe it, that's one level, and then a second level is to be public about it. And it was only when I continued to have the conversation with my community and other communities that slowly my mum came along, kind of reluctantly on the journey mm. to learn. So mm. it's it's strange because I wasn't able to do that at a kind of a personal or domestic level. It wasn't until she quietly listened into things or would try and read an article, mm. even, even though her English isn't great, or come along to a to a, an event where I spoke at where there was a, a bit of silent acceptance as I mm. took the conversation broader. It's strange that I had to be so public for something 
to privately kind of reconcile, but that's that's how it was with me. And and only now, um, maybe about a year ago, I spoke to my mother and I and um, and she said to me because you know when I would be crying and unwell and you know just not getting out of bed, she'd say things to me like "snap out of it" and crying's not going to do anything and get up and stop being Mm. selfish and kind of all the things you probably shouldn't say to somebody who thinks that, you know, life isn't worth living. Mm. Um, And then, and and she recently confided in me about 12 months ago that she was so scared because she didn't know what to do because she'd never seen, and in her words, her strong, smart daughter be so oh. weak and paralyzed. And I, she equated it with weakness. And she, she's like, and I felt I needed to be the strong one to get you up and to get you out of that funk. And, and so I guess I've accepted that it was really hard for her. She didn't have the tools to navigate it. Um, she, did, she did what she thought was best. Um, did I think it worked? No. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I've, I've accepted that she was trying to do what she thought would would help me I I really appreciate that recollection and again I want to celebrate your empathy with remembering it like that because I think for me I've had quite similar experiences of things that were not helpful at all (laughs) at the time but knowing now that it does come from a place of you know they don't know what to do either and Mm. yes they did something that was harmful but they Mm -hmm. were trying to do it from a place of love and I think Mm -hmm. that that's something that at least we can try to understand and um that's you know why something like this like this conversation is so important is to raise awareness because it's just that awareness that we can have those conversations and it doesn't need to be this very crisis focused and you know at the point where everyone's just panicking well, I mean, I may sound very zen and accepting of it now, but I have, mm. you know, ongoing therapy. I mean, I had a session mm. today with my therapist. It's something that's mm. a part of a part of my life, and you know, thank God for the mental, um, mental, uh, the Medicare mental health plan, which mm. you know helps with subsidised counselling. But I also have the resources to allow yeah. me to continue to get counselling, and I've worked through so much of the kind of intergenerational stuff. And why was I made to feel like this? And why wasn't it? wasn't it accepted? Um, so yeah, it's, it it may sound like, you know, I have all this empathy, which I I think I'd like to think I've arrived at, but for ages it was, you know, rejection and anger and and frustration that, um, that it made a bad situation worse really. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's really powerful for you to share these experiences because it really highlights at least for me, like when I was in the height of those experiences, I didn't have the language to communicate it about it, like in any sort of productive or effective way. And it was only until after I'd really removed myself from that and gotten some distance that I was able to describe how I was feeling and hold the space for other people that they mm. couldn't really hold the space for themselves. And it feels like you've done that. Yeah, I just, I think it's really powerful that, you know, you've walked on this journey without the support that you really needed at the time from your parents. Um, but in doing so, you've actually supported them to come and meet you in the middle as well now, which is really beautiful. I wonder, I really like your mention of the intergenerational aspect. Intergenerational trauma and intergenerational misunderstandings, for me, that doesn't come from a place of hate or malice or it doesn't come from a place of purpose. And I worry that like, if I eventually have kids, I might make the same mistake with my kids and I might try to do something that... Mm 
is harmful when I'm just trying to do it from a place of love. Do you do you have that same? Yeah, way? look, I guess I have a couple. You know, I have a couple of things to say about that. Um, mm. You know, every parent worries that they're not going to. You know, they worry that they're going to stuff up their kids royally mm. um, in, in one way, sh- in, in in one way or another. Mm. Another thing, I'm another couple of things I'm really mindful of. You know, mental illness is often. Um, you can ha- you can be genetically predisposed to it and so mm. knowing that especially with my second child i was highly anxious and unwell and in an in, in insomnia insomniac when she was still in 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 my belly um mm. and all the energy that she may have felt and she was you know birthed and came into this world when i was complete, really really unwell and so mm. i worry what impact that's going to have on her mental health because that was her entry into the world and her you know and her and her experience in her first few months of life and so yeah i, I do worry that they're going to i guess inherit i see some anxious tendencies with what my older daughter and i worry that that she's gotten that from me mm. um Another thing I had to really think about was because I'm public about my experience and and I've talked about probably one of my darkest moments where I started to drive in oncoming traffic when my second was in the car crying as a newborn and mm. and all all the awful things I thought and experienced and felt and I think well that's on the public record my daughters will grow up and be old enough to navigate that and access mm. it and read it and I had to had to think okay what impact is that going to have on them and um, are they going to feel that they weren't loved or that they were, you know, or whatever, that, that, that they were the reason I, it was their fault. And so these mm. are all sorts of questions. Yeah. I, I've had to kind of ask myself and I, I landed it thinking, well, no, I'm trying to, to make it easier for the next generation to treat and recognize mental illness rather than think it's shameful or something to snap out of. Yeah. Um, and so I, I guess that's why I, I, I continue to speak about it. I think that that's really powerful. Um, something that I very much resonate with is like moving away from the cultures of shame and being mm-hmm. very honest about who we are and being very purposefully and like bravely vulnerable, I think. And I know that your your kids will probably see that and think that this is true and real and this is something that's really brave rather than you know sweeping your experiences under the rug because that's extremely harmful well it's what exacerbated a lot of experiences that you had was like Mm -hmm. you didn't have someone to reach out to because everyone just sort of felt impenetrable at the Mm -hmm. time yeah I I really want to celebrate that how you're changing the culture and ending that sort of cycle I want to dig a bit more into how you feel like your culture has sort of influenced your different understandings of well-being as like has it influenced your understanding well-being at work or yeah I guess um I I realized that well-being and mental health was something I probably neglected um and it culminated when I when I had my second child you know I had I've covered a lot of traumatic things through my work as a journalist and mm. while I was heavily pregnant I was live reporting from the Link Cafe Martin Place siege right. you know heavily pregnant big ankles and I just you know kept moving forward because that's what you do with the news cycle and I probably recognized belatedly that there was some undi- you know um, unprocessed grief and trauma from such a horrific um, event and story yeah and so I guess it's made me more mindful of the fact that self-care needs to be um, you can't just dip in and out of it it needs to be something that's weaved through your relationships your work 
um, your family and all of that. And, it, and it's easy to forget to do that when you're busy and you have mm. competing interests and you've other things that, you know, are more fun than stopping and being mindful or reflecting because those things take time and they get in mm. the way of other things. So, yeah, that's probably something I, that I've learned. That's really beautiful. Um, how do you think that the culture with your parents that you were raised in or the people around you has sort of influenced that? At least, at least for me, the culture that I was raised in, stopping was not an option really. And so learning to stop was such a weird and foreign oh. thing. Um, and it just went against everything that I knew. So yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if maybe your parents had that sort of culture or maybe it was a bit deeper somewhere. Yeah, look, I mean, I was one of seven kids. And so my mum was always super busy. There was mm. always so much to do just to meet our basic needs um, and host extended family. Um, and dad worked a lot to provide for us. So we weren't a, a leisurely layabout family everything was mm. got to do this next and then got to do this for the this relative and got to get to there and um I certainly think that that pace of life and also that 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 wheel of you know running to, for betterment for, you know for the next generation mm. to be better to you know to work hard and I think that um you know and I, and I, I mean some of that was from my family um but some of that was just from what I witnessed you know when you grow up and you witnessed um, disadvantage and you witness certain things and you want to you want more um, I found that I I pushed myself um, to, to try and be and do better and that some of it may have come from the inability to stop from my family but um, yeah I wasn't actively like encouraged to like study and do violin and you know that, that you, you see a lot of other you know migrant mm. kids um yeah, so I had a bit of a slightly different experience in that regard. Do you feel like you're going to raise your kids in a similar way? Like how important is your parents' culture, do you think, in, in raising your kids? Yeah, like very much so. Like my partner is Lebanese as well. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot that there's a lot that we still celebrate and maintain. Um, and mm. I think that's really, you know, it's really important. It's really central to who we are. And obviously I think everybody should, you know, try and reflect and be and do better, but it's so much easier said than done. I find myself yeah. falling back into shitty habits that mm. I know aren't good for me or like morphing into my mother, um, mm. you know, um, even in the things I do and say to my children. So it's, 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 it's one thing to sit there and go, oh, yeah, well, that wasn't cool and I'm going to do better. Um, but it's it's actually yeah it's quite hard to, to 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 break that cycle or to break that familiar pattern. I know what you mean. There's this metaphor that so I'm I'm Asian and in my culture like women are perceived as like very you know, fragile and like poised and um, there's this like metaphor of being like a prey mantis like being very like purposeful and quiet. Mm, um, mm. But then there's this other metaphor of being like a bull in a china store you know like any movement will like break something um and so I feel very much like sometimes I have to choose between being the mantis or being the bull and I don't know which one is like more truly me like sometimes I feel like if I were to be truly me I would like abandon my culture but then my culture is part of my identity and it's just this constant pull um so it's it's really interesting that like for you when you do certain things you feel like you know, you're, you're slowly becoming your mother, but maybe part of that is actually a good thing because that's tied to your culture. It's, it sounds like it, it's kind of hard to deal with. 
it is i think it's it's always it's an ongoing i guess journey or or tug of war for kids of migrants and refugees because you want to hang on to and you have this affinity to your roots and they're so important Mm. to who you are. And also you don't feel necessarily wholly Australian or that you identify Mm. with broader Aussie culture. Um, And so it's this kind of middle, you know, purgatory for a little bit and and you choose, (laughs) you you dip your toe into either side because sometimes it's hellish and other times it feels right and it's heavenly and yeah, I just I don't think there's a there's a clear cut or right answer. Um, you just you just continue to to navigate it. You know, there are certain things that I absolutely want to um, adore and want to maintain about my culture and heritage, and there mm. are other things you know to do with you know very patriarchal, I guess sometimes you know sexist attitudes towards mm. gender um, that I want to break. You know, and, and I think that's in part why I struggled so much with my mental illness, um, my you know postnatal depression and anxiety was because it was expected that you know I came from a large family. You know, Arab women have lots of children, and it was something that we just naturally fit into and mm. and and revere, and and we're just good at it. And then I found that I couldn't reconcile the type of mother I would be with also having a career and being independent and being outspoken and being, uh, and so because my mother was a stay-at-home mother, my mother-in-law was as well, I didn't have any examples around me of how you straddle the identity of, you know, still maintaining your culture and heritage while also being modern and independent and educated. I just didn't know how to do it because nobody around me did it. Um, and then I was kind of looked at and I remember my dad once saying to me he's like oh do you love your career more than your children oh "Oh, ouch wow and I I was like no I I just don't know how to love both like I've nobody has taught nobody has told me it's an option to love both yeah it's it's so important to have role models that Mm. really show you that you know it doesn't have to be this dichotomy you know you don't have to be you're just yes. like, like, like one, one dichotomy is very silly. Um, it's like beautiful or smart, that sort of thing. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, it's it's so lovely that, you know, you can be all these things and that's wonderful that you're role modeling that and like making an example of that for other people. I think I wonder as well, um, I really love your reflection about the purgatory of being like <laughs> sort of in between cultures there's lots of studies on this about like identity and the importance of your sense of self for your well-being, your mental health. How do you feel like your sense of identity is sort of reflected on your well-being? Yeah, I think um, it's interesting and it's probably not uncommon that the older I get, the tighter I hold on to my roots and Ooh. the more comfortable I get in that purgatory. And it, mm. You know, it becomes a more comfortable place. And since becoming a mother, the more I want to impart that tradition and culture um, and share that with my with my children and so I feel while I struggled with the confines of my culture but because of how it sort of negatively viewed mental illness in a way my journey um, and my parent like my journey to recovery and my parenting journey was very much connected to reconciling the bits that I love about my culture and that was something I had to work through a lot with my um with my counsellor as well because, you know, these were things I was so frustrated about and I felt so restricted and judged and pigeonholed and was angry about 
Um, and when I when I understood the root, you know, and the reasons for it, I, I think I'm much more comfortable accepting. I'm, I'm much more comfortable accepting it, if that makes sense. I don't know if I've, I've, I've answered that properly. That does make sense. Yeah. I think something that's really wonderful is that with identity, you know, you don't have to choose one or the other in your, your you, regardless of what that looks like. And you can be this like amalgamation of all these things, but just being more sure of who you are really gives you a lot more autonomy and choice in that. And I, I'm really glad that you got to that point. I'm going to ask you like one final, very large question. Um, okay. <laughs> if you could tell listeners one thing, that you want them to know about multicultural mental health, what would it be? <laughs> um, that <laughs> praying isn't going to cure you of your anxiety. There were so mm. many times that I was told, and, you know, I think connection to spirituality and faith is important, but mm. that, is, that is not for everybody and cannot be the answer for everybody. There was so much taboo and still is around medication to treat mental illness. Mm. Um and, and, you know, and it's still something that, I, you know, my mother's constantly going, are you off it yet? I thought you were off it. Didn't you go, right. didn't you, you know, and there's still this. I was like, well, would you, would you tell somebody who was a diabetic to stop taking their insulin or maybe they could half it, you know, <laughs> and I just, you know, would you, I just, you just wouldn't do that for any other yeah. illness. Um, so... Yeah, that's probably one thing that I found that, yes, the mental illness, is it being kind of shameful, that needs mm. to stop. But getting in the way of somebody's treatment by suggesting that perhaps, and look, I, I agree, I think a holistic, you need, you need a holistic kind of approach, like medication on its own is not a silver bullet, you know, it's not a silver mm-hmm. bullet. Um, you know, it's exercise, it's adequate sleep, it's mm. um, good relationships, counselling. Like I, I've mm. thrown everything at my recovery. Um, and continue mm. to, but just thinking that you can treat like being a pseudo doctor, pseudo shrink, that shit's yeah. gonna stop. So I guess that's what I would, yeah. Tackling the taboo is one thing, and and navigating treatment in multicultural communities can be, you know, quite another challenge. Absolutely, I really value that. That you know, there is no silver bullet. Um, whether it be just praying, just medication, just exercising. It takes a lot of different angles and finding out what works for someone rather than just trying to fit them into one person's idea of mental health. Yeah, absolutely. If people wanted to reach you and have more conversations about this, which I would highly encourage, um, how would they get in touch? Oh, gosh, I'm a bit of a media <laughs> whore, so I'm everywhere. You can find me on my Instagram, I've got a public Instagram, Twitter, um, my agents page on CMC Talent um, mm. or Media Diversity Australia. There's lots of different ways to connect. Or the Gidget Foundation um, mm. for other you know parents interested in mental health. There's, yeah, I'm kind of everywhere. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I have really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like I've learned so much from you. I love these conversations. Um, yeah, and I really, I really appreciate your time. Not at all. Thank you for listening to Multicultural Minds, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness of multicultural mental health. If you want to find out more about us, please visit our website at www.multiculturalminds.org. Thank you again for being here with us and listening to voices that are often not heard. <laughs>